Today on the Hardcore Finance Podcast, we examine the topic of leverage. Alex and I actually met in person in a socially distanced way to talk about is leverage good or is it bad? Should the government borrow money or should it be fiscally conservative? And what does it mean about your investments? Finally, we examine how Bitcoin is the innovation that can answer this question in a way that could never have been answered before. So we hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hardcore Finance Podcast. This time, Shimon and I are actually fortunate enough for once to be in the same place. And we were sitting on my balcony, literally next to a fire, and started talking about leverage and what does leverage mean and how it works. And so we said, hey, why don't we just start recording? And well, here we are. Yes, Alex. So it's a very interesting thing to think about leverage. Um, we started thinking many debates in economics, like whether it's the Austrian school versus the Keynesian school, whether it's inflation versus deflation. It's all basically about leverage. And um, how about I tell you what I'm thinking about? Let's, let's look at the real estate market, right? From the eyes of the Keynesian school and the Austrian school. Again, the purpose of this podcast is we want to be completely open-minded. So we're not like married to one idea. Maybe the, you know, Austrians were right. Maybe we should just print money and give it to everybody from now till the next thousand years. And that will stimulate the economy. We don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And by the way, uh, usually we do prep for our podcast and think about what we're going to say and uh, have opinions. This is just us kind of ad-libbing, but it was going so well that we saw it. We thought, let's just record. So yeah, I, you know, I agree. There's this, you know, Keynesian versus Austrian, and where we left off before we started recording, and just to bring uh, everyone up, was we wanted to distill what exactly does it mean to be truly Keynesian, and what does it mean to be truly Austrian, and you know how all the new people are coming into the market and are becoming, you know, fans of the Austrian school. And ultimately, Shimon, you said something very powerful. You said when it boils down to it, the Austrians say save and then spend. And the Keynesians say spend in order to boost uh, the boost economy. And what it creates essentially is ultimately Keynesians believe in more leverage, right? So you borrow, you have inflation to make your money essentially less valuable so that you induce debt. Exactly. Yeah. There's debt, so you're, um, you're induced to, to spend. And the Austrians are saying, no, save, have more harder money concepts. Uh, and then spend once you are on good footing. Is that a good summary to where we were? Yeah, that's a very good summary. And, and what the Austrians basically, the main criticism is that if you just like borrow too much money, it basically creates misallocation of capital, right? So it creates misallocation of capital, which could have invested in better things. And so like, let's examine some scenarios. Let's look at the real estate market, for example. If the Austrians had their way, People wouldn't take mortgages. They would like save up some money and mm. then just buy a house. Or have less mortgages. Or, yeah, or less. smaller mortgages. But the idea is you would save money and buy a house. And so the, the houses would be like 80% cheaper than they are today, which is not necessarily a bad thing when you think about it, because it means that less of your um, money that you earn goes towards housing. But where is it a problem? Now you can buy a house with a very small down payment. So you, you kind of have to wait for less time in order to buy a house. If it was like in the Austrian school, you would have to save for like, you know, 10 years and then you would buy the house without a mortgage. Now it's like you can buy it now and pay off the mortgage within 30 years. So which of the two would be better for the economy? It's kind of hard for me, just from a first principles perspective, hard for me to decide. Now, the, the one thing I'll just say is that, yes, the, if not everybody has access to credit, then it can create a big problem. Like, for example, big corporations versus startups. The Keynesian thing is really bad because, like, the big corporations can borrow money at very cheap rates. Startups cannot, so the big corporations can buy startups. But that's why I'm thinking of real estate, which is kind of everybody, let's say, has the same access to mortgages. Yeah, I mean, you, you still have, I think, big or small. And I think real estate is an interesting perspective. You know, the question is, like we always talk about, it's not just, you know, economics in this case. It's also probably the values of that society. If your society values, in, in this case of real estate, hey, having a home is important, right? Then then it's better to borrow for societal values, right, on margin. 
it, it's similar similar with the with Europe, right? Why the biggest here's a, a case in point for this: the euro. Why did the euro come out, and why did all the strong countries except weak countries that had really shitty debt to GDP ratios? Is because they wanted peace in Europe. It, the, the value of peace finally, for the first time really in in centuries is more valuable than having a solid monetary policy. I'm, and I'm not saying that's right I, or wrong. I don't understand the metaphor. So for Europe, I totally understand what yeah. you're saying. The metaphor is this. But the metaphor, in, in the real estate yeah. market, like it, what's it, the value? There's two ways of investing in real like, estate. What's the difference between renting and owning? Like is, is one of them like morally? Yes. Better? No. Well, it depends on the society. So there's two things of real estate, right? One, I think, is investing in real estate. So are you just doing it to flip and make a profit? Well, let's talk about that in a second. Let's just assume you're buying a house to buy a house to own land and have the culture. And we can talk about globally and history. But for example, in the U.S., yeah. the culture is American dream. You come in, you get your house and your fence, and people literally mortgage away their future in order to have that house in the suburbs or, or wherever. It's very much part of our U.S. culture. And so in the U.S., there's a utility premium on being able to buy a house. Why? Just, what is that utility? It's it's just a it's a cultural. Like, thing. do you think it's justified, or do you think because that could be an example of something that's not justified? You know, and and but how so? But justified, but so, so for example, or? yeah, like for example, people say I've, I've just heard. You know, I'm not a real estate person, but I've just heard the following criticisms. Like, you know, if you're tied to a house, you're less likely to move to a better job that could pay you more money, sure, and then it's sure. a misallocation of skills. So, yeah, I heard the argument like home ownership makes the neighborhoods nicer and like people are more settled in and they make better connections. But then the flip side of that is like they miss out on opportunities where if they could move. So I don't know so if there's a moral value. Uh, think of it. A, a mortgage on a house is the same like leverage on your stock account. For so sure. you could transfer the same conversation sure. and say, look, in the Austrian school, the interest rates would be much higher uh, because like people would, you know, be you had to pay them more to part with their money. And so then there would be less leverage in the stock market. So it's the same issue. For a mortgage sure. is basically leverage on a house. Exactly. No, but let's 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 talk about this. So I don't, I don't have an answer because I don't know what's better or wrong, and I don't know why there's a more premium. Again, it's cultural. It's it's soft, right? So when we talk about <coughs> macroeconomic principles in general, one, there's no counterfactual, so we we will never know what the other one is. In very rare cases, you'll find out. Yeah, right. Hey, I, I wanted to say like countries where they don't have mortgages, but usually that there's a reason why they don't have mortgages. <laughs> Dictators, it's like not apples to yeah, apples. it's exactly. It's not necessarily apples to apples. Um, but I, I, it's for sure a leverage, just like you would leverage stocks, right? I'm, I'm actually kind of for leverage because I, I think that if we just look at the investment side, right? Forget the homeowner or the moral side. Oh, and by the way, here's my point. I kind of forgot my point for a second. Let me just go back. My point was that when we, when people, ourselves included, talk about economic theories, I think it's very important to talk about it first principles and talk about the economics of allocation, efficient allocation resources. But in and of itself, it's not the only thing that exists, right? You have, again, you have societal, certain societal values that it's not important for the U.S., some, some, very different that's important for Iran, very different that's important for Russia or the Chinese and so on and so forth. So different societies naturally can succeed with different economic and frankly government models, right? That's why they, they work. That's why I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. But let me, let me just carry this to, to the stock, right, into the stock market. We use a really nice example, which I think demonstrates this chicken and egg problem. And this is kind of where we started. And we say, hey, let's just record this. We said, let's make a very simple world of one person and one company. And that person has an access $100. They just found it. Okay. And let's say that company makes apples. And that's the only thing, uh, the only uh, object that this person needs to consume to live and to survive. Let's just make it easy. One person, one company makes apples and that's it. That person can either go and buy $100 worth of apples, right? Let's say the company, it costs the company 10 somehow to make in this make-believe world, we're not creating a real supply chain here. The company takes $100, gives the person an apple, they consume it. The, com- the person can invest in the company that $100, theoretically, and buy, and buy stocks. And that company takes that $100 and invests it in a product, but now you no longer have... In making have, better apples, in like making better, better apples. fertilizer sure. or whatever. Sure, yeah. and cheaper apples, right. But you no longer have that person's income to buy your product. 
And so, and so, yeah, let's make it yeah. a little more realistic. You you have like two $50 bills, right? You could either put $50 in stock and buy $50 of apples, or you can buy $100 of apples. Because mm. it's not like, yeah, you don't have any more sure. money. No, money still circulates. So the Austrians basically say, look, all the empires fell because they kind of stopped investing and they started spending and borrowing against the future. And then at some point, like, like you become bankrupt. Like when you borrow against the future all the time, you become bankrupt, right? So that's what the Austrians say. The Keynesians say, no, in the long term, we're all dead. Like that's literally uh, Keynes gave a speech and then people ask him, but what about the long term? He's like, yeah, in the long term, we're all dead. The Keynesian so, cop out. It's not necessarily a cop-out because, like, if you can basically... What, what does it mean in the long term we're all dead? It means, like, we will always continue innovating and, and there's going to be, like, growth that that compensates for, like, all of the, you know, debts we've taken. And then by the time this will matter, basically it never matters because we'll be all dead by then. So it's not just a stupid cop-out. And I really don't know... Like, it's hard because also the most successful economies in the world are Keynesian currently. Like Japan, for example, that like is high savings rate. Uh, they don't have too much growth. The U.S. completely living on credit and they're growing pretty nicely on a world basis. But how do you answer to the criticism about the misallocation of capital? In terms of, in terms of what? In terms of you borrow against the future, right? Yeah, but that's, <coughs> excuse me, I, I think we talked about... Um, if you grow faster than the rate at which you borrow, this is why, remember, debt to GDP in and of itself is an important ratio, but not a critical ratio. What's important is debt to GDP to growth, right? To GDP growth. Yeah. So if the debt you're paying, uh, the interest on the debt you're paying is X percent, but you're going at X plus anything percent, that's okay. Yeah. Because you're expanding your cash in, right? Uh and you're able to service that debt. So you're literally leveraging in the right way. The problem happens when you miss, like you said, miss all like capital and then countries are forced to print money in order to, well, they default or they print money or then you go into inflation and so on. Same thing. <clears throat> yeah, look, I I, I I, get it. I think there has to be some sort of probably good middle ground. And there are countries that try to have a middle ground, like the, you know, European yeah, like Union. Germany, exactly. Yeah. Germany, exactly. Germany is the European Union in yeah. monetary terms. But, but like, yeah, because they were very much scared by the, the hyperinflation that caused World War II. So they're like, this is not going to happen again, <laughs> like not on our watch. Let's look at Germany, right? Let's, yeah. Why isn't Germany a stronger economy than they are? It's not like the Germans, they have incredible innovation. They have incredible infrastructure. They're very timely and precise in general, right, in terms of how they do things. They have great engineering. Why aren't they stronger than they are? Why are they, you know, obviously the U.S. is bigger, and but it's, that only makes, you know, India is bigger. But India's economy is, is, is smaller compared relatively, right? So I said to the well, U.S., yeah, you to mi- the you mixed, U.S. I, yeah, I don't think we should mix India. We should pick two countries that are kind of on the same footing. So Germany versus the U.S. But why? Why should we? Well, because India still has a lot of catching up to do. So it's easy for India to grow a lot just because they're catching up. But right? I'm not talking about growth. I'm talking about straight GDP. And the reason why I brought up India is because to make the point that Germany and the U.S. are actually on the same in industrialized footing, right? They're both first world, so to speak, industrialized countries that have engineering scientific prowess to innovate right versus india has that prowess but they have a lot of poverty there you know the infrastructure isn't there i'm talking about two countries so you know it's yeah. a, i i just had an insight so you're right it basically boils down to leverage is not good or bad it's all about how you spend your money right that you wouldn't that you wouldn't have access to without the leverage so, so, so there's no, nothing good or bad in leverage per se. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have $300,000. You could either buy a house that costs $300,000 in cash, or you can give like $150,000 down payment, get a mortgage for the rest. Then the question is, what do you do with your other $250,000, right? That, that everything hinges on that. If you spend it on like drugs and like booze, clearly it wasn't good for you to get a mortgage. You should have bought the house in cash. But if you spend it on education, which then increases your salary, then getting a mortgage is a great idea because so, otherwise you, you wouldn't be able to afford that. I just had an insight off of your point. That what's interesting is that in some ways, the Keynesians then are saying, give the money to the people, let them do whatever they want to do with it, right? And the Austrians are saying then that 
people are not going to spend it correctly. They should be used to save. Yeah, you're right. It's basically the opposite. Usually people on the left think that you should make decisions for the people because they only think in the short term and like the government should think long term. So government yeah. should make more decisions. And people on the right say, no, the individual knows what's best for them. And so let them make the decisions and they'll make better decisions. Yeah. It's so interesting how everything converges on those two themes. I feel they're coming yeah. up a lot in our podcast. They do come up a lot. And that's ultimately your... Uh, economic division between in the U.S. Republicans and Democrats, or the left and the right, ultimately, right? But what's you know, this is a, a different rabbit hole. What's happening now is quite different than these economic principles. But it's what's interesting to me is that again, the left chooses Keynesian. What actually, if you think about it, the way we thought about it, and Keynesians all about leverage and then take your money and spend it, it, it. It's technically up to the person to spend it however they want, and so there is no misallocation theoretically if you believe that people are smart enough to choose for themselves. I think the question is: the question is, it, it, at what point is there a tipping point of the masses where more people spend it on bullshit, and then you get into a vicious uh, cycle of yeah. of debt and debt service, right? Yeah. And that's when con- con- uh, countries inflate. Not only yeah. consumers, by the way, governments too, right? If we treat government as a consumer, or we treat the corporations as consumers in the U.S., if we think about a government as a consumer, gigantic consumer, and say governments should, you know, have a, you know, we've elected them, so they're going to spend it in our name, so to speak, the way we want yeah. it to be spent, and the government makes the right decision, then there wouldn't be a problem. Theoretically, no, no consumer would say, yes, I want to go into a death spiral, Right. I'm going to trust the government. The problem becomes is when the governments become, you know, corrupt or there's a lot of bureaucracy or there's a lot of inefficiency, which is the big knock in the government. So that's where I think the Austrians come out and they say, well, don't let the governments become such a gigantic consumer and act not in the way consumers elect them to act, that they fuck it up for everyone else. Yeah. So that's another point, which is the point of governance. And yeah, I think it's, it's very problematic. Uh, because we know that the governments are not very efficient at, at many things. Um, but like, if we go back to the interest rate idea, which is like, yeah, the more you borrow, the lower the interest rate is because like, you know, the government wants to encourage leverage, they print money, interest rate is down. So many people say in the Austrian school, oh, interest rates should be higher. Now, interest rates are basically artificially low. As we're recording this episode, the bank will pay you 0.2 or 0.3% on your like one year deposit. So super low. Uh, overall, it has been something like 5%. Now, there could be two reasons for that. A, it could be because like the government's flooding the market with money, and so there's so much money that people are just take it, like you don't have to pay me a high interest. Or the, the, the positive thing, people would say, people Keynesians would say, look, uh, because the interest rate is low, you can do projects, you can borrow money and invest that money in projects. And so then it, it, it stimulates the economy. So again, I don't know who's right because like the question is which projects do you invest in? If if the interest rate was 5%, you would have to find projects where the IRR, the internal rate of return is like higher than 5%. Otherwise, it's not worth your, yeah. it's not a good investment. When it's zero, you have many more investments possible, but then also those investments yield less. So I think that's the core of the Austrian argument, which is like it will be higher quality investments, better economy, more productive economy, and the economy will grow faster. If you just lower the interest rates, give people credit cards, mortgages, just take money and spend it, they spend it on things that are but just I guess, consumers. So I guess the question spend. is, it's ultimately a P times Q question, price quantity. Do you have a lower return, lower price, and a massive quantity, like a Walmart type of play, right, Keynesian? Or do you have you know, a lower turnover, higher price, higher margins type of play, which is Austrian, like your, uh, I don't know, a, a, like a... Tiffany's or Louis Vuitton type of play, right? What's ultimately worth more scale, right? And by the way, Keynesians say that it's governments, government spending should be a major part of the whole formula. I, I would, yeah. If you don't mind, let's take the government out of this because sure. the government can be Austrian or Keynesian, right? The government can say, we have a balanced budget. We don't, like like the US in the 90s, it's like, we have a surplus. No, We could I'm have saying, spent money, we could have used leverage, we're not. We're going to spend less than we make. Or a government can say, like, let's do 300% debt to GDP like Japan. So it's not, it's like two separate questions. It's like how much the government is involved, but also how is the government? Well, let me finish. Yeah, we can move a government. Here's my point about government. Just let me finish the point. We we move on, we move on. 
is that Keynesians believe, right, that the government plays a critical role and they want to empower the government to spend essentially a lot through various policies, right? Government spending is a big part of GDP. Now, if we believe, now, I, the government can spend according to their own values, Keynesian, Russian, whatever, but I'm just saying Keynesians in general are for bigger government, government yeah, exactly, and Russians are for smaller government, yes. right? So Keynesians yes. are like, we trust the government to do what it does, and if the government yeah. truly does, you know, two or three things, protects its citizens, right, ultimately, uh, allocates negative externalities, like Dow Chemical or, you know, shouldn't pollute the river and have people die, and invests for the long term where people are uh, likely to invest for the short term, like you said, if they do that efficiently, then I think it's a good thing. The problem is that governments rarely do this efficiently, right? Yeah. That's my whole point with government. It's, it's not what the government does. But with what lens do you see the government as an actor being, so to speak, right? Is that a major player or should it be a minor player? Yeah. So let's let's return to what we're talking about, major, minor, high interest rates, low interest rates. Like if you could be the dictator and decide how the economy is running, what would you go with? Would you do high interest rates, less borrowing, smaller government or like low interest rates, more borrowing, bigger government? What do you think? I don't know. It's a good question. I think I would go for, again, it's going to be dependent on the country, but if I inherited a country like the US, yeah, I would go with a lower interest rates, more leverage. Even when we talk about wealth being generated, real estate, you generate it on leverage. You don't generate it on, you know, You don't think that the whole real estate market could exist without mortgages? No, well, it could, but the access to it will be very bifurcated between the upper echelon and the lower echelons. Mortgages are doing is giving the people that aren't able to buy for cash an ability to buy for cash. Of course, it inflates the market. Of course, it inflates prices. So you right? don't think that's a problem? That like, I don't know it's, if it's necessarily a problem. Again, in the sixties when yeah. the interest rates were like five, six percent on a mortgage, people could buy a house after they would work for three years. They would come with $10,000. They would use it as a down payment and yeah. buy a house for $50,000. Those houses are worth a million dollars today. Now, uh, the Keynesian would say it's not a problem that because, they're worth a million dollars. Yeah, they're worth a million. The, the money increased. The salaries are higher. Yeah. But I don't know. I think uh, okay. it's problematic. You have a point. You have a point that, you know, if there were less, and there were less people able to get houses and people saved more and you kind of bought one house and... If the house prices were lower, they were more affordable. We can say, hey, the millennials now could afford homes if we didn't have this huge inflation capital. Inflation. Exactly. But however, however, um, in a country like the U.S. with tons of land, again, it depends on your your priorities. If you want to live in a big city, you're screwed, right? If you want to live in the middle of nowhere, and actually we should talk about this in the, in the lens of corona. If you want to live in the middle of nowhere and you want to buy a house, you can easily get a small loan, Right, and you get on a hundred thousand dollar house, for example, in the middle of the country. Get you know, put ten thousand down instead of saving for your hundred thousand. So it gives much more access to the to the people that are just starting their careers that don't have as much to have that home ownership. So the question is, do they want to live there? Right? What is their what is their premium personal utility on owning a house in the middle of the country but being far away from let's say job center? But being able to afford this piece of land versus not. I, if I inherited the U.S., knowing the culture here, specifically for home ownership, it's to own a house, right? So the, the Keynesian model actually works. Does it inflate the market? I agree with you. You, you kind of push my thinking. It does, you know. And, and who knows what the house prices would be? But the wealth would be concentrated with kind of the way you had before. Lords and ladies had wealth, had generational wealth. In, in land and real estate, they passed on and on, and the other people couldn't even afford to get up there. But I don't, so it's I, don't, I don't see the relationship between the inequality and, and Keynesian versus Why? Austria. Because like, I think you could you could make the case that under, yeah, I don't know. Like you basically are saying the government can print money so like poor people can afford houses. Yeah. The question is where, right? But we're saying before they could before, which is like if nobody could get a mortgage, right? Yeah, all the houses would be cheaper, so everything should have been the same. The question is how much are houses? If there's a certain barrier to enter, right? If everyone needs, if all the houses are 100,000 to 200,000 in price, right? There's no million dollar homes. But you need 100,000 to enter. Within that, you know, that's not, the, 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 the range is, is pretty low. 
Then once you're in, you're in, and then you know you, you can afford a hundred thousand dollar home or a two hundred thousand dollar home. Yeah. But you got to get in, right? Yeah. There's a certain threshold to get in. Keynesians remove their threshold from the masses. Austrians keep the threshold, but then the appreciation, the price once you're in, is lower. I That's do believe true. there's a it's certain higher. threshold. You, you mean higher with, with Austria? Threshold is higher, but then the range from the, the appreciation. The appreciation. Be Why? Because then, because under Austrian economics, the economy grows faster. That's the whole point, which Why is like the interest faster? rate is higher because like people invest more money, the interest rate is higher, and so the economy grows but faster. But again, is it a push model, the economy or push? This or pull. This is a push model. You save more, so you invest more in production, right? And the pull model is you demand more and you buy. But there are many examples, and this may be a bad example, but shit, we're just kind of ad-libbing here, so I'm going to go with it. Let's look at, you know, and I just recently finished watching the articles. But the drug trade, the cocaine trade from Colombia, Colombians produced it. But why was it so popular? Because people in Miami, Americans were buying it, right? If Americans weren't buying it, this thing wouldn't, no matter how much they would have produced, if you have no consumer, what are you going to do with the product? Why do you assume that you would have no consumer? See, that's that's one thing that drives me crazy. It's like the international monetary fund. Oh, if there's deflation, nobody will buy anything. That's bullshit because like there's deflation in electronics and people still buy electronics. People say, if you think the price of something will be cheaper next year, right, then you are not going to buy it today. You're going to wait. That, but that's the whole but idea of stimulation, but right? But definitionally, you have, you have no. lower consumer. But you, instead of spending $100 on a uh, DVD player, for some reason, we're in the 2000s, <laughs> yeah. on an Xbox, yeah. <laughs> okay, you invest in Microsoft. So you're not buying the Xbox. So definitionally, you use your capital to invest in production, so consumption is lower, definitionally. You took the money out of consuming and you put it in production. Not necessarily, because if what you put in production lowers the price of goods, then for the lower amount of money that people have to consume, they will get more goods. But I'm saying for the marginal dollar, marginal dollar, you can put it into buying a product or you can put it into investing. If you put it into investing and then the product falls, from a dollar to, to 50, 50 cents, cents, but you don't have that 50 no, cents anymore. No, you have anymore. 50 cents because you don't allocate everything into investing. I'll give you an example. After So the Industrial Revolution uh, made um, knitting of like cloth, right? Like for clothes, for drapes, for everything, right? Much, much cheaper. It lowered the price by 90% because suddenly machines were doing it instead of them being knit by hand, okay? Now, it destroyed tons of jobs, right? It destroyed tons of jobs. And so under the Keynesian model, you would have said people that used to have jobs now don't have jobs, so they cannot buy, they cannot afford to buy the product, right, even though it's cheaper. What what happened is that after the Industrial Revolution, the consumption of clothes exploded because suddenly they were affordable. So all the people that uh, more people were employed in weaving with machines than people were employed with weaving without uh, before machines. Can you imagine that? It's super counterintuitive because the industry grew 10x. Suddenly everybody could afford, like before the industrial revolution, you had one shirt and for the, for your whole life and you know it had holes and you would mend it. After the industrial revolution, people had like 20 shirts. So that's the perfect Austrian example, which is like you invest in machines, you invest in capital instead of consumption, instead of buying shirts from the weavers, you invest in building the, the machines that make the clothes and that makes everybody richer and, and the industry grows a lot more. So so that's their main kind of, that's their main thesis, which is like consumption leads to less innovation than if you invest in production. That's the thesis. Now I can give you the counter thesis, which I think if you believe that technology can grow infinitely, then the Keynesian way makes sense because then it's like, look, we have infinite resources. So you lower the interest rate. So what? So you have projects that wouldn't have been funded anyway. As long as you have infinite energy through solar, through nuclear, through all of these things, you can produce anything. So go into infinite debt. Why not have 500% debt to GDP? We'll be able to pay it eventually because we can just print money to pay the debt. As long as we can keep producing more and more energy and more and more goods, everything will work itself. Basically, if you f- if you think that the resources are not constrained, then Keynesianism is the way to go and leverage is the way to go. If you think that the resources are scarce, then the Austrian School of Economics is good because then you invest in the best resources among the scarce ones. Yeah, so, so what do you think of that? No, I think, it's a, I think it's a good point. You brought up a couple of things there. And frankly, I don't know the weaving example uh, 
uh, as much. By the way, for our listeners, if you hear outside noise on this podcast, it's because I, it's coronavirus, <laughs> right? So we have to be outside. Yeah. We are social we're social distancing. We are social distancing. On the balcony, again, you know, having a drink next to a little bit of a fire and, and enjoying this conversation. So uh, back to this is this is great. We should do all podcasts like this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> So back to your thought. There's, you know, I think there's, I, I don't, I don't know the weed example, so I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's a, I it's think a it, classic, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like a classic good, example in economics. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I see there's a lot of validity to it. I guess there's two questions, right? And I'm going to raise questions to you. Is one is how many weavers are you taking off the market as consumers versus making it cheaper for others, right? I guess it's a, there's a question is how many jobs are you losing or how much spending power are you decreasing? Versus how much are you amplifying? That's one. And I think the reason... Yeah, how much spending power you're decreasing is a very good question. Because you're not saying how many jobs you're decreasing. If suddenly like half the people lose their jobs, but each family, if the prices drop by yeah. more than 50%, it's a net gain. Yeah. Because like your spending power increases. Yes, exactly. So it's a, it's a delta spending, a spending, excuse me, power. And the other one is the resource uh, point I think is very, is brilliant. I mean, it's, it's very smart. Like, what do you believe are the resources because we always talked about again back to a debt to GDP if your debt is growing but your GDP is going faster you're fine right if you're if you bought an asset on the stock market at leverage and your appreciation of that asset is, is more than more, the interest rate you exactly the leverage, yeah. <clears throat> you're fine yeah right so what where where it runs into problems in scarcity when you have down cycles and then your resources dry up for a certain amount of time, right? So can you withstand down cycles? Otherwise, if everything keeps on going up, yeah. you know, keep on leveraging. I'm not sure about down cycles. Um, but it's a constraint on resources. It is a constraint. That's what it is. No. For example, I heard a really cool criticism of the Green New Deal, right? So, for example, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, let's print a bunch Alexandra. of money. Yeah. Let's print <laughs> a bunch of money and build solar panels and, you know, redo windows that are not energy efficient and so forth, and it will create lots of jobs, right? Then the critics say, yeah, but those people are working today. I mean, this was before COVID, right? Like COVID is a special case. We can talk about COVID maybe later, but just in a normal economy, those people are doing something today. So now you're forcing them, quote unquote, into doing like window installation because it's more profitable for them because you printed all this money. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, if that's an artificial planning of resource allocation. Yes. So if you think that the resources are constrained, then it's a bad thing. If you think the resources are not constrained, then fine. Like the government has, let's say, tons of like resources that it can sell or it can like mortgage or whatever, and then use this money to do like windows. I don't know. You know what's you know what's you know what's ironic. Actually, I just had this insight, and uh, it's not fully formed. So so tell me if I'm saying something way off base. But in, in many ways, I don't think it's Keynesian or Austrian. It's application of the two models. So for example, you're right, Keynesian theoretically will work if resources are constrained. Therefore, you actually shouldn't have a, a minimum wage under the Keynesian model because the minimum wage artificially constrains your resources to do, because you can you can go down the supply curve, right? And say, okay, well, I can pay people less to do window installations now that I moved to those jobs. Wait, excuse me. There are people that were doing whatever it is they were doing. We moved them to window installations because we inflated, we put, put money in there. They move. Now, somebody has to cover, back cover their jobs. As long as you can pay someone less and bring them in to do those jobs, infinite number of resources, you should be okay, mm -hmm. right? But if you have an artificial minimum wage, which whether we're for or against minimum wage, this is not a social discussion. This is just a, a resource discussion. Of course, people should, you know, uh, earn enough to live on. And, and I, I, this is just a purely theoretical discussion. So listeners, hopefully don't don't take us for assholes who believe that, you know, we can pay people a dollar an hour and that's okay. But when you introduce... By the, the way, I think, yeah. side note, I think it's totally okay to pay people a dollar an hour if that dollar buys you what $15 buys you today. And that's the, sure. the, the, basically the utopian libertarian kind of idea is like no minimum wage. The prices of everything will just crash because like you'll be able to employ people at very cheap uh, salaries, you'll produce things for cheap, and then the costs will go down. And so, yes, it's spending power. Yeah, exactly. So, so I don't. It's all think, spending power then. Yeah, it's exactly. literally all spending power. It's what happens in that spending power. But yeah. what I'm saying, are, are ironically, in the left pushes, for example, um, 
you know, more Keynesian, but they bring in a uh, minimum wage. That actually breaks the Keynesian assumption of, of unlimited resources in many yeah, ways. Yeah, I think minimum wage actually but is a stupid of, idea, and it has of, nothing to do with Keynes. You can have minimum wage with an Austrian perspective. It's just like the government you, mandate. You no. can. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if we believe the Keynesian model relies on infinite resources artificially, in this case, a minimum wage, cutting off your infinite amount of resources goes against the fundamentals of the model itself. I, we, we, it, like whether you're for or against, or that's, I'm just saying it's an artificial cap on resources. It is. It is. I, I'm against minimum wage, so you don't have to convince me. Yeah. yeah. Under the Keynesian, under the Keynesian model, it theoretically, then maybe it shouldn't be there, right? So that you can keep on filling in resources. And if you thing, believe in true Keynesians. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. I mean, another thing that's, that, that's, um, basically an argument for the Austrian school is that people without debt can make better decisions. So if you, let's say if you have debt that you have to pay and then suddenly like you have an opportunity, forget about the real estate and moving somewhere else. Like you can't, it, it has less entrepreneurship, for example, because you have to pay like your student loans. Like for example, with student loans, right? Like the Keynesian idea is let's guarantee the loans. So it increases the price of college education, but suddenly everybody can get a loan for college education. Before student loans, it used to cost $5,000 to get an education, but not many people had those $5,000. So it's yeah. like... And student loans are not only Keynesians. Keynesian, and we, you and I talked about this, Edna, and this is your point. It's Keynesian locked within artificial borders or where you can spend the money. So it's yeah, all exactly. funneled within one channel, one industry, or one area of... Sp- yeah. I mean, one... Sp- type of area spend so of course it, it's going to inflate with the market that's for sure actually terribly. i'm for if we could take student loans and just say every u.s citizen could take a loan of three hundred thousand dollars and use it either for college or to buy a house or to start a business and whatever and then the government guarantees it at six percent i think that would be a great idea but like because the government says no, I'll guarantee it at six percent only if you go to an accredited college. Yeah, because then the, it inflates only that one sector, and that's yeah. definitely bad. Yes. Well, yeah. Again, the values are you know getting people educated, but I agree economically it's bad. Economically, the only way to reduce it, and I I thought otherwise actually. I thought that there should be an interest rate arbitrage for the government, and I talked to Shimon about this, and to your credit, you proved me you kind of change my mind about this that, you know, I was always about, yes, you should have student loans for student loans, but your point was take the money out of that sector, allow money to flee and it will bring costs down. And I believe by the way, wholeheartedly that the costs will come down. I mean, there's nowhere to go. They're astronomical right now, completely yeah. unhinged from the earning potential that you get yeah. while leaving the university. Especially and, since you compete in the global job market. So like if we were an island yes. nation that doesn't trade, it's like, Oh, fine. Uh, you hire a secretary and you have to pay her $100,000 because she has student loans and then everything would calibrate. But if it's like, oh, I can hire a U.S. secretary or I can outsource it to India with someone who has like, a, you know, a degree in English from the best like university in India and speaks like flawless English and is really good, then it becomes problematic because this one costs you 100000 that one costs you 50000 you would go with the other one. So, by the way, this is... Um it's interesting how before COVID, over the last you know five to seven years, now that we've gone down the route of education for a second, over the last five or seven years, you have Coursera and Udemy's and you know LinkedIn uh, trainings and all these things pop up, and they, they're becoming you know much more popular. And now with COVID, if it radically changes the way we go to work or not go to work, really, right, not go to the office, um, these things will become much more much more useful than a traditional college degree because you could get someone in the global job market. You don't need to be in the same physical space anymore. So you can get someone in the global job market that's going to cost you a lot less, produce just as good of work, yeah. if not better, right? And and now the U.S. Uh, US employees and U.S. talent is actually priced out of the market in yeah. many ways. And that's because of Keynesianism, right? It is because of Keynesianism for a second. I'm, so for sure, it's not like it, I'm not... You ask me, what, what would I do? You know, I'd be Keynesian in the U.S. because of other things, but I'm not saying it's, it's, it's definitely not without flaws. We have, in many cases, you know, student loans. Uh, we shouldn't even talk about state, you know, governments and budgets and what they've done, the, the, the bankrupt, how bankrupt the states are and how other states, we talked about this many times, you know, subsidize each other, the strong subsidize the weak, but maybe they shouldn't. And I, 
there are many problems with Keynesians, right? But um, I, I just, I don't know, and you've changed my mind a little bit, but I don't know if I can still fully get on board with a true, that a true funnel into production versus into supply versus demand will create enough downwards price pressure to lower the prices to a point where the people that are able to work for a dollar an hour, but that dollar an hour earns them the ability to get more than the 15 or 12 right now. I don't know if it will get there, right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the expected value of that is, right? I don't know if that's better than what we have now where everything is sky high. So I will tie it back to Bitcoin. So I, you know, we got some um, feedback. <laughs> we got some feedback from our listeners that like they love our philosophical musings, but they always want us to tie it back to an investment um, kind of angle or like a way to profit from it because they're basically like, oh, you have all these like interesting insights, but I, as a person who's not into finance, doesn't know how to capitalize on that. So Alex, you said something here really interesting, which is like, you can't know which one is better, Keynesian or Austrian, because it's hard to create a counterfactual because it's determined by the government and it's a monopoly on money, right? So it's like, if the government says this is Keynesian, that's how the monetary system of the, of the country will basically perform. It will have a lot of money printing and with everything that we spoke about now. If the government says, no, we are on a gold standard, and we don't print money and we don't get into debt, that's it. You don't have the counterfactual for that one country. Guess what is the perfect counterfactual? It's Bitcoin. Bitcoin. So it's the first time in the history of humanity where you have your own government with its own monetary policy and you also have Bitcoin. And you can stay in the same geographical jurisdiction and say, look, like Bitcoin now pays 6% as an interest rate while the US dollar pays like 0.5%. So you could like take your US dollars, buy Bitcoin and get 6%, and suddenly you're living in an Austrian world, right? A world with higher interest rates. So long as you actually cannot... It's, it's great. It's, like it's, a, it's, a, it's a parallel monetary system that's global, and people can jump between the two, and let's see what's more efficient. So long as you can... I, yeah, I, but what would happen if the US government and all governments... Well, if everyone adopts Bitcoin, then yeah, then it's mainstream now. You don't even need to Even if, if people don't adopt it. Bitcoin, because what will happen is... The beauty of Bitcoin is that even the poorest person in India can, af- can afford it, right? Because you can buy any fraction of it. So if the government of India suddenly prints lots of rupees, that person, that poor person has a choice. Do, does he get a mortgage on his house and buy a house or does he rent a house, right? And take the difference between the mortgage and the rent invested in Bitcoin. And now you have a true market competition of the two monetary systems and it can be global and you can literally A-B test. If the people who hold Bitcoin become richer than the people who do not hold Bitcoin, that's a proof that the Austrian School of Economics was right and it's better to invest long-term with higher interest rates and all of that. Mm, if almost, almost, almost. The only almost, Let's say on steady state, not yes, now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So now state. we're growing. Yeah. That's why we're Bitcoin, very bullish yeah. on Bitcoin because like it's a, it's a new technology. But it's like the internet in the 1995 Versus the internet in 2021. Yes. The internet in 2021, pretty much steady state. It's yes, working. exactly. Right. Exactly. So in yeah. a steady state, I completely agree with you. In a steady state, it'll be the first time maybe we can actually see a true counterfactual and see what's ultimately going to work. Now people are going to get wealthy in Bitcoin because it just has supply, right, fixed supply, a, mu- a bunch of demand, and people are going to open their eyes to it. Once the world enters, right, at a mass scale, where that adoption curve is going to really slow down. So it's kind of, you know, at its whatever plateau of adoption, then it'll be interesting to see. Then it'll be actually a really cool counterfactual. Hopefully yeah. we get to see we'll it in our lifetime. We'll definitely get there. And also the interesting thing is like the volatility of Bitcoin is the price that you pay. It basically prevents you from taking too much leverage, right? So like when Bitcoin drops by 80%, that means that if you had a 4X leverage... Are you, are you arguing for the volatility of Bitcoin? No, no, no. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying... It's, it's a natural dampener for how much leverage can you take on Bitcoin because institutions are taking leverage on Bitcoin. Like now all of these companies that are paying you 6%, it's because they're lending that Bitcoin at 8% to institutions, which means institutions can like take that Bitcoin and generate more than 8% with it 
Um, so that's pretty cool. That means that the growth rate of the Bitcoin economy is more than 8%. Now, either that would shrink and the two economies would converge at, at a steady state and the interest rate will be the same. Or what I predict is that governments will spend money irresponsibly. The interest rate for the government will be lower and people would borrow again, just like Michael Saylor and my MicroStrategy did. They would issue bonds, borrow against the cheap interest rate of the government, buy Bitcoin with it, and that would com- kind of completely destroy it. Basically, the debt would balloon until they would have to like raise the interest rate and they would have to like default on some of it. it and it's then, ironically, we'll see. it's a resource arbitrage, the resource being the dollar or the yeah. fiat currency of the. It's kind of what the Venezuelans are doing where they're using the free state electricity to mine Bitcoin in order to get some sort of whatever, some, some, some sort of thing to live on. Yeah. So our investment advice would be, look, if, if you think that you can borrow money and invest it in something that will yield you a higher percentage than the interest you're paying, the only thing that should be a limit to how much you borrow money is the volatility that you're willing yes. to, to uh, accept. So, for example, stock market it can fall by 60-65%, which means never take more than like, you know, 30% leverage uh, on the stock market. But for example, something else could have lower volatility than you can take a higher leverage like a house. A house usually doesn't fluctuate by 60% yeah. in value, so people get higher mortgages, 80%. And so, um, yeah, it's rare that house prices go down by more than 20%. So, you know, <coughs> I like this point a lot about the relationship between the leverage you take, right, versus the volatility you're, you're willing to uh, to to uh, to take on, right? I think the other point I really want to, I quickly want to make is that the other feedback we've actually heard from some folks is, you know, again, good good uh, bands are good ranting um, and good thoughts, a little too much focus on Bitcoin. And I just want to make it uh, in two words, explain why, we talk a lot about Bitcoin is not only is it an incredible asset class to invest in right now, and it's been proven that it is now a asset class that's not going away, but also because, right, it's not for these cyberpunks or, you know, anarchists or hacks. It, it gives an ability to have competition in money, global competition in money, which you weren't able to have before. Right. And so that is, you know, forget kind of even beyond Austrian Keynesian, if it even exists with different economies, it's the first time in history when you can globally compete for the resource of currency, of money, one that can't be easily taken away from you and that you can transport wherever you go. So there's no restrictions on moving it. That's why it's so interesting, right? Yeah. That's why as a concept, it's so interesting. It It's going to radically change our macro economies it, whether we like it or not, just by the the, the, the pure uh, the pure aspect that it's a competition for for money you've never had that before. Mm-hmm. So no matter how big it gets, the fact that it's a competition is going to push people, right? It's going to push uh, the way people invest, the way people spend, what they put their money in, how they arbitrage, which system they ultimately choose. It's not going to happen right away, but it'll you know it'll happen. When Bitcoin is at some sort of mass, solid mass adoption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned the, the competition part and the, the idea that you can transfer it across borders. Because like that basically, when you think about it, uh, if you have a monopoly on the money production and if you have like uh, money that's locked in a specific border and you can't move it around freely, that is definitely bad for productivity. Just because like if everything is efficient as it is, you open up the borders and then nothing will change. But if something is not efficient, you open up the borders and suddenly things will rebalance into, by definition, something that's better because people choose it. And like over time, they especially as goods good. become digital. Yes. And, and like, for example, I, I know the European Union story very closely because like when Bulgaria entered the European Union, the main thing, you know, my parents were in the intellectual class. And the main thing they were saying is like, look, it's free movement of people and capital. And how can free movement of people and capital be a bad thing, right? So it, it was bad for certain industries. It was bad for a certain like group of people because many young people left Bulgaria, for example, to work in Germany and Spain. And then um, old people were left behind. But then those young people started sending money yeah. back. And actually, Bulgaria is much better off today after joining the European Union. So if you think of like a country joining a larger group of countries in a free trade agreement, that's what we're doing with money. And it has never been done before because until now, all these um, decisions were made by bureaucrats. 
<coughs> and they were, they were monopolized. So it's like, this is the interest rate. The central bank, the Federal Reserve decides, decrees that this is the interest rate. By decree. And it's crazy, right? Maybe a different interest rate is better. For the first time, we have a free market of interest rates, which is Bitcoin. Right for the first time and derivatives have, of Bitcoin. and derivatives of Bitcoin and for the first time we have like a free movement of capital with Bitcoin nobody can stop it so I think it would be a net positive for humanity and that's our basic investment thesis of Bitcoin which is it's a technology that will upgrade humanity's productivity and then yeah governments can compete against themselves they always have this one layer of like constant uh, free market which is almost like a barometer of like are you doing well or are you not doing well versus Bitcoin. And so that's very, very uh, exciting to me that we, for the first time, have a non-government monetary system. So which system is better, Keynesian or Austrian? Well, I mean, I think I think bit, my answer to that would be let the free market decide. So I think it doesn't matter is it Keynesian or Austrian. What we said before is that Keynesian works better if the decisions are better, like if the money is spent on good things. Austrian is better if the money is spent on bad things, the money that you borrow. We don't know whether the government spends it on good things or bad things because, again, we don't, we're not oracles. We don't know, you know, will the Biden government spend it on good projects or bad projects? I don't know. But what I do know is that they now have a competition, so they better spend it on good projects. Otherwise, people will just borrow and buy Bitcoin. And then, like, if oh. they screw up the currency... Then- I wonder if it makes governments more efficient, actually. Like, governments are going to have to... <laughs> excuse me, I'm going to have to run in a much more efficient way, you know? They won't be able to mess around and play it away because then you, people would just choose not to. Yeah, um, they would inflate, inflate away. I mean, I heard on a podcast that in Venezuela, if you're if you, if you're kind of upper middle class or middle class, you could have made a killing from the hyperinflation because what happened is that the government, so the government basically had a law that the interest rate that banks can charge you is capped at 30% per year while the currency was going up by like 100 or 200% per year. So then what happened is if you could get a loan, it's almost like free money. You would get a loan, yeah, you would yeah. buy literally anything, and you would make money off it. So Actually, now that you mention it, I um, I won't mention names, but I, well, I'll tell you later. <laughs> I know exactly. I know the story. <laughs> Let's just say this way. Now it reminds everything, and I, uh, I know people who have done this. And yeah, it, it becomes, it's literally printing money. It's complete pure arbitrage. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you print money and invest it in good projects, then your, your currency shouldn't devalue. If you print money and invest in bad projects, your currency devalues. And as long as you can you know, protect yourself from that, Bitcoin is great. And what's also cool is that like the fact that it's global, it's, it's just amazing because there's so many different governments making so many different decisions. And if you measure the government's, let's say, wealth in mm. Bitcoin terms, that would tell you how good they're doing. So instead of measuring GDP uh, in in like the local currency or in dollars or something, measure GDP in Bitcoin. And I think that's actually a very cool project. If we could start uh, a site or something that shows the GDP of countries in Bitcoin terms. But wouldn't it just be the dollars no, divided by? Because it's not just dollars. Like if, no, if we, let's say you have currency, their currency. You yes. actually make a right point because like the U.S. has so much influence in the world that pretty much all the currencies are kind of a, a derivative of the dollar. I mean, like it's are, hard to yeah. It's, but even if you take their own currency, I guess you just measure in the difference between some sort of well, you just you take in their volatility. Yeah, that would be interesting how much they are. And, and, and you could have a government that's like a libertarian wet dream, which is like a government could peg its currency to Bitcoin and then see how the economy functions. And that would be completely fascinating. It's probably going to be like a small island or something. But like that imagine someone pegging, basically saying we are generating a new dollar and one new dollar equals one Bitcoin. And like the conversion rate of an old dollar to the new dollar is currently 29,300 as of today. But like, that's it. Once everybody moves to the new dollars, the government says we're not going to issue more dollars than we hold Bitcoins in reserve. And then let's, let's see. Let's see. Maybe that would be the most prosperous government ever. I think it'll still be, well, maybe it may be too early, too much volatility for government to work. I mean, that's what Switzerland <laughs> did with the gold standard. They stayed on the gold standard after everybody else. And until they left the gold standard, they had 0% unemployment. They, they, they were very, very good because like the whole idea was like, yeah, there shouldn't be unemployment. It should be a perfect balance between supply and demand. Now, 
who knows, maybe Switzerland off the gold standard could have done even better. Yeah, that's the, that's the kind of factual that we, exactly. we don't have. Exactly. So, we, yeah, and Bitcoin will allow us to, the Bitcoin economy allows us to do it. But again, I think at, at scale, not, not right yeah. away, because there's too much for a country to function. A country can't lose 60% of its value and then go up, you know, 40%. It just that's you can't. True. That's true. So, for, you know, it needs some sort of, you, you, you know, you shut down every couple months for like six months and then you can't do that because you have human services and so on. Yeah. So I suggest we recap this episode and then we have just the main learnings. And then I have two topics that listeners asked me to cover that I can okay. cover really quickly. So what's the recap of this episode? I'll start with learning number yeah. one. It doesn't matter. Do you take leverage? Yes or no. What matters is what do you do with the leverage that you took. If you invested in things that are very productive and yield a lot, then the leverage is good. If you invested in, in things that you shouldn't have invested and only because you can take leverage, you bought them, then the leverage is bad. Sure. That's learning number one. I think the second learning as to this is, you know, resources. Where you take you take leverage, what do you do with it? Which project? And do you have infinite resources or not, right? Because that's going to dictate your ability to, you shouldn't cap resources. Yeah. And, lever and, and learning number three is that until now, the whole debate was not really provable because every country put a monopoly on their system. And so you couldn't prove a counterfactual and Bitcoin will provide this counterfactual. Yeah. 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 I would say yeah, one last one before you, you uh, close off with your points. I think the other one is it's okay to think about debt and debt service. Again, if you put it towards good projects, as long as you're going higher, mm -hmm. right, it's okay to look at debt rates or debt ratios that are pretty high. Those are fine as long as your GDP is growing. And as long as you can withstand the volatility. Yes, exactly. And as long as you can withstand the volatility. Very important. Okay. Um, what are your two, two things? Two little small points that came up in conversations with, with some uh, listeners. One is about government banning Bitcoin and, and specifically taxing it. So government putting a wealth tax on Bitcoin. Uh, it's a threat. For example, the government could say, okay, we know your Bitcoin holdings because like, you know, all the exchanges yeah. uh, reported it to us. You owe us 50% of your holdings as tax. They could do it potentially. Now, and yeah, some people would say I lost my keys, but then they would say, okay, we're watching the address if yeah, the thing yeah. moves. Okay. So the downside of doing that, there's two counterpoints to that that I believe really strongly. One is the downside. Two is the risk-reward ratio. The downside of doing this for a government is it's a violation of property rights because it's a retroactive changing of the terms. And that's exactly like what the USSR did with like different nationalization of industries and stuff. I don't think that the US is so stupid as to do something like that. People here are actually very good about understanding that like the fact that there's protection of property rights here is why investment comes. So like you do this once. And then suddenly people will not want so, to, one second, I'll yeah. just finish and then you can tell me what to think. People will not want to like use U.S. exchanges, for example. They would put their money offshore, use offshore exchanges, have it somehow not reported back to the U.S. government and the U.S. would miss out on all this action. So I think the government will not do that because like it has a lot to lose in the long term. And then also what's important is the total market, of, uh, the market, market cap of Bitcoin currently is what, like half a trillion dollars? Let's say you put a 50% tax on that. How many of, how many, um, what percentage of the market no, is US? US? Maybe 30% of the value is in yeah. the US. No. So you get like, For what, sure. 200 trillion? And then you put a 50% tax on that. It's like $100 trillion that you can get. But then you don't have 100% collection. You'll maybe collect I get it. like 30%. So it's a very, very small yeah. number. And once you do it, you stifle the whole industry. So because of those two reasons, it's not going to bring you a lot of revenue and it's going to hurt a lot of future action just because of jobs created and everything. I don't think the U.S. government will do that. So I, I won't go too deep on this because, you know, these are your last two points to wrap up. Um, but I think this could happen. U.S. does this all the time, especially in courts. Look at what's happening on Facebook. Not 50%. No, I'm not talking about yeah. taxing. I'm talking about, no, no, I'm talking about retroactively going back on and, and re-adjudicating the past. Regardless of what you believe, look what's happening with Facebook. Do you think they can put a significant tax, a significant wealth tax? Sure, but not now. They won't do it now. Exactly. They'll do it later. Not now. No, That's not my now. point. It's too small. Too and the risk-reward sure. ratio. But in the future, at some point. In the future, in the future okay. But by then, Bitcoin will be worth like a million dollars a piece. 
And so now's the good t- now's the good time to no seriously. If Bitcoin is worth a million dollars, then it becomes like enough trillions of dollars that it's worth taxes. Exactly. That's, that's my later. Point. Yeah. That's so it. basically, it's a good time to enter now. Again, not investment advice, but this is just my thesis yeah. around a risk that's priced in. Yeah. Which, right now, nothing's gonna happen. For sure exactly. Gonna happen. Exactly. Do you have anything else to add no. before I move to the second point? No. Okay, the second quick point is, is people just asked about passive investing and like w- what is the best, like if you have a certain sum of money, what's the best way to invest it? I basically say, look, as long as you keep the fees very low and you invest in an index, I think it's pretty good. I don't have too much to add on it. Like even like we did a lot of conversation about NASDAQ versus S&P, but I don't think you should worry too much about where specific, what portfolio to build. Just pick an index that you believe in, that you think, you know, either the world stock market or the US stock market or the S&P or the NASDAQ, and that's it. Just like put it in something with a low expense ratio. I think that's a very good, solid strategy. And so for the listener who asked about what's the best way to invest money, that's pretty much all I can say. And of course, Bitcoin, but uh, that's, you know, if you listen to our previous episodes, you'll understand why Bitcoin is good. Uh, we shouldn't repeat it now. Do you have anything to no, add about I, where to invest money? No, no, I agree with you. Indexes, I would do like S&P, NASDAQ, and some in Bitcoin. The ratios are kind of up to you. But I agree. Yeah. By the way, they also asked us, where do we put the money? My my personal portfolio, 50% Bitcoin, 20% uh, S&P, and 30% NASDAQ. I'm I'm probably about, I'm a little less than you in Bitcoin, but I, that's out of my mistakes. Um, an episode on that to come. I'm probably 40% in crypto, Bitcoin mostly. Uh, I'm in 60% stocks and probably half of that is uh, leveraging the NASDAQ and the others are all tech stocks. A little bit in S&P now. Yeah. All right. So yeah, keep the questions coming. Thank you for listening and uh, please leave a review and rating and uh, send us your questions. Yeah. Perfect. Good fireside chat. Awesome. Talk to you later.